0: So, we've been in this series, started last week, that I titled, uh, With Everything. And it's based off of a verse in Luke. And if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up to that. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 28. It says, one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told them, do this and you will live. Now, I mentioned this last week, but it takes uh, worth reiterating uh, a lot of times when we read this verse, we almost always immediately in this chapter jump to the immediate story afterward, which is the story of the Good Samaritan. And so it's a very famous story, especially if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this story a million times. The problem is that is taking the assumption that the religious leader, the, the lawyer who knew the law was already accomplishing the first portion of this commandment. Right, He was already jumping to love your neighbor, but the question is, do you love God, and not just in the way that you might think, but with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so each week this month, we're going to be looking at one of those aspects. Last week, we talked about what it looks like to love God with all your heart, and how it goes beyond just the emotions. And this morning, I want to talk about what it looks like to love God with all your soul. Now, this is complicated, I would say, because as I was doing my studies and my research and I spent hours just looking up, uh, a lot of commentators almost brushed over the soul part. It was like, oh, I love God with your heart and it means this and the mind means this and the strength means this and the soul. And it just kind of always brushed over. I'm like, no, no, what's the difference between loving God with your heart and loving God with your soul. Because, I mean, we know from just biology that the heart doesn't have any emotions in and of itself. Right? It's really just an organ. It's what we attribute to all the things that we talked about last week. So then what is the soul and what does that look like? And I think one of the problems we have when we read a verse like this is when we hear "soul," we almost always start to go into more of a Greek philosophy of the soul, which is that it's like this little entity that's put in a jar, and you know we're actually souls and, and these like flesh like things. And uh, I mean, part of that I guess can be accurate, but it starts to skew in a way that the original Hebrew didn't ever think about like that. As a matter of fact, when Jesus says, what does the law of Moses say? He's attributing it back to something Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy. A prayer that every Jew understood and memorized and did on a daily basis. Right. As a matter of fact, that verse is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 5. This prayer is known as the Shema. It's called Shema because of the first words, listen, O Israel. Shema means listen, pay attention. It says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. This is something that they were taught from a young age and a prayer that they prayed every day. The Lord alone is your God, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Now, obviously, the scriptures, especially in the rabbinical times, the Hebrew scriptures, were written in Hebrew, not in English. So they didn't use the word soul. The word soul, they took from a translation of the word "nephesh." Nefesh is such a deeper word than soul. Some of these ancient languages, they were so creative in their words because we tend to use one word for a million different things where they had very specific words for very specific things. Nefesh is so much deeper than soul. It is meant to convey the inner living being of a man. And it speaks to the very essence of a person, the will and desires, what fortifies, what motivates, who you actually are Is the nephesh? You see it all throughout scriptures uh, in the Old Testament. uh, The famous scripture, uh, "As the deer pants for streams of water, so my nephesh longs for you." Right? It's it's a way to talk about the innermost aspect of who you are. This word is also famously used in the Book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter two, verse seven. It says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living nephesh or soul. Okay, I think it's interesting when you read the creation story, just the uniqueness of what God did with man because all other creation, God spoke into existence, right? God spoke the heavens and the earth. God spoke animals. God spoke the waters. God spoke everything into existence. But when he created us, he breathed. He spoke everything else. But for some reason, there was something different when he created our lives, when he created our existence. At this point, he didn't say man come to be, but he breathed life, nefesh, into man. We became a living being. I think God imparted something of himself into us so that we're not only created in the likeness of God, but there is a part of God in us that yearns to be reconnected to God. The nefesh. This is... Powerful. This is why every human being, whether they believe in God or not, has a yearning for the Creator because God breathed life into us. He didn't just speak it. To love God with all your soul is to love God with your whole life. That's what I think it really means. To love God with all your soul means to love God with your whole life. Why do I think that? Well, let's flash forward now to Jesus Christ. After his death and resurrection, he appears before his disciples. He gathers them together and in John chapter 20, verse 22, listen to what it says. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This right here is the first impartation of rebirth, of salvation. He breathed on them, going right back to the Old Testament, going right back to creation. He didn't speak to them. He said, now in Jesus' name, in my name, you are saved. He breathed on them, re-life, right? New life is put into them. This is an incredible illustration of going right back to the beginning of making right what was made wrong in the garden. He breathed life, nefesh, soul recreation born again the problem is we have this issue with our lives we carpamentalize most of our life whatever you mean by carpamentalism is we put our life into compartments this is who I am here this is who I am here this part of my life is for this this part of my life for that when I was a young man, my, for those who may not know this, my legal name is very Hispanic, right? It's Jose Antonio Silva Jr. Guzman. So that's my legal name. That's my paisa name, Jose Antonio Silva Jr. Guzman, right? Now, if you know anything, there are way too many Jose's in the world. There's just too many of us. It's just not right People need to get more creative. There's way too many. And then on top of that, there's still way too many Jose Antonios. Like, Antonio's a dope middle name, right? All my Antonios in the house. Anybody, Antonio? Thank you, Gio. I love you, bro. And so, so my name was always too common. And so in my home, they've never called me Jose or Jose Antonio. In my home, I've always been called Joey. Now, the problem was, when I get to school, my legal name is Jose. So in school, the teachers called me Jose, the students called me Jose. Not a big deal. But when I got into high school, I went to high school with people that I grew up with in my neighborhood. So people that I grew up with, people who knew me intimately, would call me Joey. People from school would call me Jose. And my freshman year, literally, there was a couple of people that were arguing over what my name was. And so they came to me like, bro, are you Jose or are you Joey? Yes, and they were like, no, man, you got And I realized in that moment, I kind of got to pick who I'm going to be. I got to decide. And again, I'm sorry. I know there's a lot of Joey's, but it just sounds better than Jose in that moment. I'm just like, you know what? Just call me Joey. Why? Because the people closest to me, my family, my friends, the people I grew up with, they all called me Joey. Now, what happened throughout my high school time is I began to be able to differentiate between those who knew me and those who knew of me. Right, So if somebody called me Jose, I knew they only referred to me like that because they heard the teacher call me that or someone else. So they don't really know me. We're just kind of classmates. And if they called me Joey, then I knew that they knew me. right? And so the problem is we would start to complementalize things like that where, hey, I'm going to be one person here, one person there. Why I decided to do that at an early age, freshman year, is because I noticed that at school I would be one person and at church I would be another person. So at church, man, I knew the scriptures. I rose my hands. I was a great Bible study kid. And uh, Sunday school, I was amazing. And then at school, I was different. I wasn't bad or evil, but I wasn't, I mean, the, what I said at school, I shouldn't have said in Sunday school. The way I acted in school, I wouldn't have acted in Sunday school. And it's amazing, especially those of us who grow up in church, how easy you can compartmentalize. You can be one person with your friends here, and then you can be another person with this group of friends or with this environment. And we still, I think, have start to do that. Even when we give our lives to God, the question is, did we give our whole life or maybe just Sunday morning? Maybe just Wednesday night. But some of those other days, that's, that's for me. Or, or, you know, who I am at work, it's gotta be different because, you know, the nature of my job or, or the way, like, I just, I can't, I can't be who I am on Sunday here. And the truth is, the hardest part of our lives is surrendering the entirety of it to God. That's what it means to love God with your whole life. It means every part of you. I don't want just this part of you. I want the whole thing, the good, bad, and ugly. God desires all of you if you're going to love him with your whole life. So I wanna go through a few thoughts because I was asking myself, what are some of those compartments, those areas of our lives that we have the hardest time surrendering to God? So buckle up, because some of you might get your feelings hurt this morning. Number one, my life's decisions, right? In other words, your will, what you desire, what you want. Think of all the life decisions we make that we fail to include God in the process of. All the life, the career paths we choose, the places we want to live, the people we want to date, the things we make decisions on that we fail to even allow God to be in the process of. We have no problem asking God to bless the plans that we've already created. We just don't want to put him in the process of creating them. We make the decision, right? Because this is my life. Like, I got to decide what I want to do, who I want to be, where I want to go, what I want to do with it, you know, how I want to express myself. Like, I'm going to decide who I am and my will, and then God, I'm going to have you just cosign on that. I'm going to just have you make sure you sprinkle it with good stuff so that it goes the way I want it to go, but these are my plans. And the problem is when you surrender your life to God, that includes your will. That means you no longer are the deciding factor of your life. That means you no longer get to dictate where you go and how you get there. We don't just wanna include him in the planning process. God has to be the planning process. Listen, James chapter four, verse 13 through 16. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. That's a hard word, but isn't it true? Imagine one morning... You wake up and as you're getting ready to go to work, you look at your spouse. You go, "Oh, I forgot to tell you. Um, I sold the house and I bought a goat farm, <laughs> so you might want to pack up." Like, just look. Imagine that. Like, imagine one day that just happened. Like, hey, uh, forgot this. I'm sorry. It's a lot of stuffs going on. Uh, can you just, you know, just get everything ready? Like, knowing many of you, your spouse would not get to work that day. Okay. At least not alive. Like, there would be some serious repercussions and issues because in a marriage, you're supposed to be a partnership. You can't just make critical decisions like that and then not tell me, again, man, I'm, I'm sorry, but if in the last two weeks I've been causing some issues in there, this is the Lord, it's not me, just take it over, with Jesus. But, but in a good, healthy marriage, we're supposed to be having that conversation. You can't just be making these rash decisions. Why? It affects me. And and again, even just if not the fact that it affects me, but just the disrespect that you wouldn't even talk to me. You say you love me and you wouldn't even talk to me about something like that. Now we understand that from a carnal humanistic standpoint, but now let's take that into our relationship with God. The one who died on the cross, who gave his life so that we can actually have this life now. And we're like, Hey, thanks for the salvation. I'll let you know when I need something else. I'm going to make some decisions here. And God's saying, wait, 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 I have a plan for your life, a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, a plan to give you hope in the future. And you're like, yeah, but your plan's kind of boring, or your plan is not exactly like what I want to do, and so I'm going to do this instead. And, and we get into this constant, no, I got it, no, I'm going to do it, until our plan completely blows up in our face, and then all of us sudden like, God, why, Lord? And God's like, what do you mean, why? That's not you. You, you made that bed. sleep in it now. Like this is Why are you mad at me for decisions you made outside of me? And now all of a sudden you want to include me in the planning process? You already planned it and your plans fail. Listen, what I've come to understand is when we don't include God in our plans, God allows your plans to happen. And that is the worst thing that can occur is that we start getting everything we want and that we start getting it the way that we want it. Listen, we have to make sure that whatever plans we have, even like when I was dating my wife, I was very careful. Every time we talked, I would say, hey, listen, if the Lord decides one day we'll get married, here's what I'm thinking. If one day you and I should be married, here's something I'd like to consider. It was always if, it was never a guarantee because she wasn't my wife yet. And the problem is if I started acting like she was my wife, I might've started doing things that husband and wives do that we weren't ready for because we weren't married yet. And so a lot of times when we make decisions, we make them outside of God, right? Well, pastor, you know, things are getting really rough in the city. And so we're going to move out here. I've traveled all over the world. You cannot hide from sin, evil, and anything else. And especially like, oh, you know, the drugs, suburbs got drugs, probably more, better ones, more money. Like you just, you can't escape evil. The safest place in the world to be is where God called you to. And when you start making, and, you know, Pastor Carlos has said this, and I've heard preachers say this all day long, and I've heard from people a million times. They move, they make all these decisions, you know, how long is it for my commute to work, and, uh, you know, what's the neighborhood schools look like? What's the property tax? You know, what's my, you know, who's my neighbor like? You're looking at all these things, the crime rate, you look at everything, you know what they never look at? God, where have you called me to go? God, what local body have you called me to be a part of? Because what if God didn't call you to leave? And I'm not one of those guys that said you can never leave Belmont because Belmont's not Jesus. I'm, listen, if God has called you and he's blessing you to go and be a blessing somewhere else and, and that church flourishes because you're there, that's a feather in our cap. I'm not mad about that. But too often people leave, oh, we just, we just can't find a church like Belmont. I was like, it's not that Belmont's special. It's that you were never called to go away. And again, I'm not trying to knock it because like, uh, here's what people say. It's like, we're gonna, we're gonna move and we're, we're still gonna come. You live four hours away. <laughs> Like, it was raining this morning. I live eight minutes away. I almost didn't come. And I work here. Like, it's not going to happen. But the problem isn't that, you, you know, oh, that's just you're not including God in the process. Now, if you thought that was bad, wait for the second one. Because the first one is my life decisions. The second one is my financial life. The money. Money is one of the most fortified strongholds in the fight against your flesh. It's the one area that we have the hardest time giving up. It's the one area that we have the hardest time trusting God with. Everything we do, really, in a certain extent, we do for money. The education you got, the job you have, the places you live, the things you do, is to gain more money to do more stuff, to gain more money to do more stuff. That's a wretched life, if I would argue that. But listen, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 6 through 10, very famous. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Right? The pharaohs tried that, and their coffins and tombs and pyramids just got raided by thieves. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. I mean, listen, I'm just going to be very, I know we don't have everything we want. I know we don't all have everything we desire, but the overwhelming majority of us in this room have food and clothing. We have the majority of what we need. Okay. May not always have what you want, but there can be contentment because praise God, I have a, a roof over my head on a rainy day like this. I have food in my belly. I have clothes on my back. I have the necessities of life. Contentment means God, thank you for that at least. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. We've said this over and over again within the church, but it bears repeating. Money in and of itself isn't evil, okay? I have no problem taking it from you if you feel that way. I will gladly take all your money and take the evil off of your hands. (laughs) But it's the love of money that ends up being a root that gives birth to all kinds of evil. That's what the scriptures are trying to tell you. Obviously, that within our society, we need money to be able to have a civil society, to be able to buy, purchase goods, and sell things. And Obviously, it's the way our society works. So money has a function and a role. But when money is the driving force of your life, God isn't. When money is what your will and your life is constantly striving for, because, man, I need a bigger house, I need a better car, I need to get more gadgets, I need to get more things, I need, with this accumulation of stuff, and yet, all the while, our relationship with God is completely diminished. Because, well, I pastor, I don't have time to serve because, you know, I'm working overtime every weekend. What you working overtime for? Oh, well, you know, because I got to pay for this. I gotta, you got to pay for this and that? It's like when I was a youth pastor and teenagers well, I can't come out there because I got to work. What you got to work for? Clothes and a cell phone? Nah, you good, bro. You don't need all that. People live for centuries without cell phones, you'll you survive, you'll be all right. No, no I just, I, I got it. Like, like your 375 a month is going to help you with everything. Like we, we, we make these big things and sacrifices in our relationship with God to accumulate what? HBO Max, Disney Plus, Starbucks drink. Ooh, I'm hitting, I'm hitting buns now, right? It's the little stuff because we waste so much money if we're quite honest. All I'm saying is when you pursue that, that's all you get. And what God is saying is, if you love me with your whole life, why do you think God asked for an offering? Why do you think God asked us to give our tithes? You think God needs our money? No, it's an act of surrender. It's an act of faith. It's saying, God, I will not love this more than you. So here you go. Because when we don't do that, here's what happens. And I just, I won't harp on it too much afterward, but I've always believed this. We have the, we have the audacity to think we're giving God 10% of what we have as opposed to understanding God's letting us keep 90% of what he's given us. Like, you know what I mean? Like just the thought process is so skewed. And I get it, because that gets harder as you make more money. When I was a little kid, 10% wasn't that much. $2, here you go. No problem in the offering bucket. Here's my two bucks. I give, they're two bucks too, no problem. But when you get older and God starts blessing you and and you start getting some actual currency coming in and you're like... $200, $2,000 $200, $2,000 for tithe? Seems like a lot. But you remember when you were like begging and praying God for that job? And you were like, Lord, if you, if you just give me this job, and God's like, uh-huh, what, what happens? What happens if I just give you that job? What happens if I give you that promotion? You'll stop serving me, you'll stop acknowledging me, you'll stop even talking to me because you're so consumed and stressed out about a job that's not going to matter a thousand years from now? Is that, is that what we're talking about? Listen, we have to be careful. Money can't rule over you. That's why the Bible says you can't have two masters. You cannot love God and money. Third thing is this, and I got to hurry up. We have a hard time when we compartmentalize our finances, when we compartmentalize our will, and when we compartmentalize my social life. Relationships, right? I've seen more people walk away from God because of the relationships they keep than anything else. This can be a dating relationship. This can be friendships. This can be just toxic people that you are allowing to stay and manifest in your life. These are the people that you are going to for guidance and for love and for affirmation. And if they don't love God, and I've said this for years and years and years, if your inner circle, the people you keep closest to you are not close to God, neither are you. It's just, it's just a fact, and you can't deny that. Like, like if, if, if my friends are all by the piano, and I'm by the piano, then we're by the piano. But if I'm over there, I'm not by the piano, right? And so the problem is a lot of us think, no, no, like all my friends, we love the piano. We're all about the piano. But the piano's over there, and you and all your friends are over here. So if I'm going to love the piano, I got to be over there even if my friends are over here. And the problem is, we do that with guys. Say, no, no, no. Like, I love God. I just, you know, people at church are kind of boring and they're kind of weird, and I just don't like any. Well, you don't know any of them because you've never take time to actually build a relationship with them. That's why some of you fellas, like October second, oh, the barbecue, the Bears are playing at noon that day. It's like you don't care. You know they're gonna stink this year. We all know that. Like, it's a rebuild year. It's fine. I'm the biggest fan here. I can admit that. All right, it's okay. But listen, I can buy Justin Fields' jersey. He's not my friend. He's not someone I can call when things get rough. He's not someone that's going to intercede and pray with me. The relationship I might build at that barbecue with an individual is going to be so much more important than what the score is at the end of the game. But we need these relationships. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 to 34. It says, don't be fooled by those who say such things. For bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. Don't get me wrong. We need people. We are built for relationships, we are built for community. But if we surrender our lives to God, then He gets to filter who's in those lives, He gets to decide. Who gets to be a part of our lives. Parents, you know this. You're observing about who your kids keep within their circle. You're mindful. And I know as a kid, we hated that because I don't like you hanging out with that person. You don't know them. And then as you grow up, you're like, man, they really knew them. Like, <laughs> that guy was an idiot. <laughs> just like, right? like I just, man, good job, mom, dad. <laughs> like, I didn't see it. You saw it. <laughs> But as a parent, we understand with our own children, that person's not good for you. That person's manipulating you. That person's using you. That, that person is trying to take advantage of you. That, that person is leading you into bad paths. And we would rather defend the person than the parent. Right. And we still have carried that habit today when it comes to our relationship with God. I would rather defend my friends, the people that I have company with, than my God, the person who gave me this life. And we have to be careful. When God begins to point some things out, when he starts to tell you, hey, listen, that relationship with that coworker, that's unhealthy. Well, we're not doing anything wrong. If you keep going down that path, it's gonna cost you your marriage. You need to break that relationship. We're not doing anything. Yeah, I see the end from the beginning. You don't. I'm telling you, cut that relationship off. You don't need to be DMing that person. You don't need to be having private messages with that person. We don't heed these warnings and it costs us dearly. I don't think most people wake up saying, can't wait to cheat on my wife today all of a sudden. It's a series of small decisions left unchecked that grow into this kind of sin. When I gave my life to God, he now gets authority to filter that life, to tell me who's healthy for me and who's unhealthy for me. And that's not always even sinful. That's even people, like even as a pastor, I have to be careful about people that come into my life and are trying to drain me and make me their God. I'm not your God, I'm a pastor, I'm a human being. I have faults, I have issues, I have my own concerns. Like, I can't be your Jesus. That's why Jesus is Jesus. Like, that's not me. I'm trying to be like Jesus for him, not for you. Like, I can't be that to you. And a lot of times it's easier because of the tangibility of an individual where we wanna make you God and go to you when we need help and you solve our problems. And if we're honest, a lot of leaders, there's a part of us that likes that. That likes to be needed and likes to be affirmed and likes to be wanted by other individuals. But I warn you, be careful about that. Let's make sure we help people by redirecting them back to God because we can't be that for you. The fourth thing is this, and then we'll get ready to wrap up, I swear. It's a hard time giving up relationships, giving up finances, giving up our desires. But what about my way of life? The control of your life who gets the hand on the wheel. We inherently don't like being told what to do. Just don't like it, right? Particularly as Americans, we don't like being told what to do. Regardless of your political affiliation, blue or red, neither party likes being told what to do. You wanna make people lose their minds? Tell them what they can and can't do. And all of a sudden, there's a huge uproar. Even things they never cared about. It's like all of a sudden, you can't eat french fries. What do you mean? That's my God-given right to eat french fries. It's like, what are you talking about? You haven't eaten french fries in 10 years. but I want to now. Like it's just all of a sudden, it just is, listen, the moment you tell somebody, it's, we know the psychology of that, right? Like I play that game with my kid all the time. It's like, hey, don't you cuddle mommy. Immediately she goes and cuddles her mom. And obviously I want her to cuddle her mom. That's why I say it. But it, it's almost like it, it, all that has to happen is somebody has to tell you not to do something and immediately you want to go run and do it. Why? Because we're control freaks because we want to dictate the path of our life we are proudly independent proudly independent and that sounds almost patriotic right today's september 11th it's the anniversary of one of the most tragic times in our history and i remember right after that and it's so weird you're starting to get to that age where there's generations and generations that weren't even born during that time but for those of you who weren't, I remember just immediately after the amount of American flags that flung and the, the pride and the civic nature that rose up in the country was, was really cool for that season. And so when we say things like we're proudly independent, it, it almost is like, yeah, isn't that great? But church pride is a sin in the Bible. Independence is saying, God, I don't need you. When we are proudly independent, we are committing the very sin that Lucifer committed. God, I don't need you, I'm enough. Matter of fact, I think I'm better than you. Be very careful when you allow yourself and your life because of the nature of your controlling to say, God, I want to do this. I know that you don't want this for my life. I know that you've categorized this area of my life as a sin, but I don't care That's who I am. I know you said I'm not supposed to do this, but I don't care. It's what I want to do. You know, there's a difference between stumbling in sin and willful outright sin, right? Stumbling, making a mistake. Like if when my kids make a mistake, you know, she spills her juice or something, I got no problem sitting there with paper towels cleaning up the juice. Now, if she grabs a cup of juice and just starts flaring it around the room, I still got to clean it up. Uh, She's gonna catch a beating with it too. Like that, that wasn't funny. Why? Because that was deliberate. That wasn't an accident. See, some of us, or all of us in this room, we all sin, we all make mistakes. But there are those of us who are, there are particular sins in our life that we are being deliberate with, where we know that it's wrong. We know that God has convicted us of it. We know that God has called us out on it. And we look God in the face and say, I don't care. I'm gonna do it anyways. And again, going back to my kids, I don't care how cute she is, nothing infuriates me more than when she's willfully defiant to my face. Like there is something that rises up on me and I'm like, if there wasn't a decent, now, i like, there is something that just wells up within me. Why? It's like, you are not the parent. I am the parent. And in the same way, we well up before God. Shut up, God. I do what I want. And God in his mercy and grace has not struck you down. Listen, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. You got to give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? How can you love the Lord your God with your whole soul when he doesn't even have all of it? Because a part of it is still in your hand because you get to dictate the path of your life. And my friend, if you do that, that path will lead you away from God. Pastor Jason, if you can help me out. Just you is fine. You're good band. You might wanna write this down. It's a thought the Lord gave me and I just thought it was good. I think the hardest part of Christianity is not living the life that God called you to, but denying the life that God called you away from. That's the hardest part. It's not living the life that God has called you to, but dying to the life that God has called you away from. God is saying, that's not you anymore. That's not who I called you to be anymore. I've called you to a better life, an eternal life, a life that begins now, not just when you die. This life that I have for you, it was paid for at a high price. I want you to live to the fullest. Listen to me, church. It's hard when we hear a sermon like this because we start to think that that God wants to strip us away from all fun and all enjoyment and that he wants to create this meaningless servitude kind of life that just drains everything out of you. and, And that's the reason why a lot of people don't want to give their life to God. Because they have this understanding that if I say yes to a life with God, I can never have fun. I can never have friends. I can never do anything. I can't even watch the dumb bears game. Like if I give my life to God, then everything is ruined. That's not true. Galatians chapter two, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life that we get to live was birth in love. God was willing to give up his whole life so that you can gain a whole life. That's the beauty of all this. That's why I never had an issue surrendering my whole life to God in that way. Yes, I maybe struggled growing up in church and, you know, tempting and, man, maybe do this, maybe do that. But when I saw what the world was offering in comparison to what God has given, there was really no competition there. Matter of fact, Paul, he he reiterates this in one of his epistles where he says, I consider it all garbage in comparison to what I've gained in Christ Jesus. See, I think the problem is we look at too much of what we lost and not as much on what we've gained. Well, well, you know, you mean I, I can't have those? Those friends were no good anyway. They were draining you. They were sucking the life out of you. They were bringing you down into destruction. God has given you new friends. New people that are, are going to, they're not perfect, but they're in there with you. They're in there trying. At least they're in the same boat. Whoa, I gotta gotta give away all my money. It's like, listen, there are so much more blessings that go beyond money, it's not even funny. You guys know what I'm talking about. There's some of you in this room, you've given up pay raises because even though they were gonna pay you more, they were always gonna ask more too. More of your time, more of your life, more of your effort. And in many of us, we understood, you know what? I'd rather take a pay cut and spend more time with my family than get more. Why? Because we value things differently. And when you value everything monetarily, then no wonder money will always be your God. But God has blessed me so far beyond money. I did not get into ministry for money. Trust me on that one. And I'm not not going to play the violin and the poor preacher thing anyways. Because I am so incredibly content with what God has given me. It's not even funny. I've traveled the world and God has provided that. I've got to see so many incredible things, meet so many incredible people, do I mean my bucket list is, is been knocked off over and over again. Why? Because God's just been good to me. I mean I've been faithful in giving as well. My wife and I have given more and more every year, and God has blessed us more and more, not just monetarily, but in every way, shape, and form. We giggle sometimes about it. it's like, man, we really can't outgive God. And then when it comes to the will and control of my life. Why would I want to dictate what God has already perfectly planned out? No, the Lord gave his life so that I can have life to the fullest. And in order to enjoy life to the fullest, I need to be able to love God with all of it. So I'm going to ask you to stand tonight as we get ready to close. I'm just asking you to close your eyes for a moment just as you reflect on the word that God has given. Is there a part of your life that you haven't surrendered to God yet? And it doesn't have to be one of the four things that I mentioned. The Holy Spirit might've already been like, no, this is the area of your life that you haven't surrendered. I want to encourage you today, not convict you. I want to encourage you to lay it all out before the Lord. Every aspect of your life, everything that you are, go fully in and see the benefits that come from a life that is fully surrendered to the Lord. Just try it, give it a year. Say, God, I'm gonna give it all to you, and see if God doesn't open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing that you won't even be able to contain it. Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray for every individual in this room right now, God. Lord, I tried my best to communicate your word. Lord, it's by your spirit that we are drawn to any kind of change. God, I just pray that we would be honest with ourselves. No one else in this room knows but you and this individual. What aspects of our life have not been fully surrendered? And God, I know it's not easy. I know it's not an overnight thing, but Lord, I pray that it will start with a desire and a will to do what we have to do to begin to surrender ourselves fully over to you. God, for those areas where there's doubt, Lord, I pray, help us with our unbelief. Lord, I know we have a level of faith, but there's a measure of faith that's lacking to trust you, maybe with our finances or, or with our relationships or with the leading of our lives. God, I just pray, help us with our unbelief, God. Show us, Lord, that you are good and faithful, that your plans are perfect and true. And God, we know your plans don't always include our happiness. It wasn't about happiness. But Lord, life in the fullest is so much more than happiness. Lord, I pray that we would live a life that when we get to the end of it and we stand before you, we'll be able to hear the greatest words we've ever known. Well done good and faithful servant. So, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. We are your currency. May you spend us however you see fit. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone here said, amen. 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 Would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Hallelujah.